I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Our guest today is Mark Elias. I worked closely with Mark for longer than either of us would care to admit to. And he did just amazing work on behalf of the DNC and the Biden campaign, winning 64 victories against Trump's baseless voter fraud claims. He is an expert on all things voter suppression, voter protection, and we're already seeing a lot of activity by Republicans to dramatically, dramatically roll back the ability to vote. So most importantly, let's talk about where that stands and what we can all do about it. But before we get into our discussion with Mark, let's talk about this crazy week. Steve, I made the mistake just before joining you here of looking at a video of Marjorie Taylor Greene caressing a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump's junk. She must not have read what Stormy Daniels had to say about Trump. But what a week it's been. Kevin McCarthy made his move, right? Kevin McCarthy decided he was going to go move on Liz Cheney. Kevin goes on Conspiracy Loon, Maria Bartiromo show. And he says, hey, listen, you know, Liz has hurt a lot of people's feelings by saying that this is the worst abuse a president has ever committed by inciting an attack on the Capitol to interfere in the certification of an American election. Kevin said she's going to have to explain it to the conference. And then they started leaking out that there would be a vote. Matt Gates goes up to Wyoming to attack Liz Cheney. That fucking guy, by the way. <laughs> Matt Gates, who's pledged his undying loyalty, who has announced that Trump is the forever leader of the Republican Party and, more importantly, the leader of the America First movement. We'll come back to that because what it is is a fascist movement like the one from 85 years ago. But he goes up to Wyoming and this vote that Kevin McCarthy's engineer starts coming together. So Liz Cheney walks in there. She doesn't say a word, by the way, which I thought was pretty cool. She doesn't back down. She doesn't apologize, you know, but basically in the language of Congress tells McCarthy to go fuck himself. McCarthy at the conference is then telling people, no, let's not do the vote. People just use it against us. But Cheney insists, right, hey, there needs to be a vote. So 140 of them on on an anonymous vote, right, or with Cheney. If it was a public vote, it'd probably be the opposite, but anonymous vote, 60 of them, right, or to get rid of Cheney or do whatever. And then half of them stood up in ovation for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Everyone walks out, does a news conference. Hey, we're a united party. We've given her absolution now from when she was talking about the Jewish space lasers and killing Pelosi and all the other crazy stuff she did. So you have these insane people. They've decided we must accommodate them. This is our party now. It's the photo negative of what Republicans did to the John Birchers. They got rid of the crazy people. Now they've said, no, we have to be with the crazy people. And the crazy people are dangerous. Well, and they're in charge and not just in Washington. It is interesting, by the way, your point about a secret vote. I'm sure there's journalists who are asking each of these House Republicans how they voted. And what's going to happen is the tally is going to be like, oh, it's interesting. 150 of them actually said they voted against Cheney on the ballot. Oh, for sure. For sure. McCarthy is, uh, I don't know. I mean, can he hold this together for two years? Meaning, do you think he'll still be the leader when we get to Election Day 2022? No way. I mean, I think the die is cast in the confrontation between Liz and Kevin. I mean, that's the thing. When you move on someone at that level, you got to take him out. Yeah, you got to kill the king, as they say. He's really maintained in power by the Freedom Caucus, who wants a weak leader. 
Because any type of strong leader would tell the 60 of them to shut the fuck up and sit down on behalf of the 140. But it is like an interesting piece of human psychology, right? And I've seen it play out in other things, just not ever in Congress, where you have a tyranny of the crazy minority that rules through insanity, that the only way to placate them is to amuse them, right? It happens in families, it happens in businesses, it happens, it happens. But to watch it play out around the government, around the Congress is quite a thing. But that's why he's tolerated by that. But here's the thing. Microsoft has made a big announcement today about their democracy initiative, about getting out of the donations business to all these members led by McCarthy, led by Rick Scott and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. They're going to get out of that donation business to all these people. And I really think that money squeeze on McCarthy is a real one. I know they're worried about it. They're talking a lot about it. They think that it'll be back to business as usual in six months, but I think that's delusional. I think he and his leadership are probably promising people that's what's going to happen. It'll all blow over. And the evidence is it won't. Well, Steve, we could bat this back and forth all day long, but let's go to our guest, who I know we're both excited to hear from today. Mark is an expert in campaign finance, voting rights, and redistricting law. He's represented the National Democratic Party and dozens of U.S. senators, governors, representatives, and campaigns. He's challenged racialized gerrymanders four times in the U.S. Supreme Court and won each time. In fact, Mark is so good at what he does that a few months ago, Lou Dobbs suggested that Republicans hire him for $500 million so the party could start winning in court. I don't explain how much money that is, $500 million. That means that Mark Elias could pay off the $400 million in personally guaranteed loans that Donald Trump has coming due that are probably going to bankrupt him. Mark Elias could pay all of that off with the Lou Dobbs money and still have $100 million left for himself. So, Mark, welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, in Donald Trump's deeply disturbed, addled brain, I'm sure he thinks if Mark Elias had been on his side, he'd still be in the White House. You'd be the first one to tell you as good a job as you and your teams did, he was playing an awful hand from the beginning. But it sounds like people should be realistic that your ability to continue that sort of winning streak in some of these states is going to be harder, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things. First of all, the numbers that people have gotten used to citing about 62, 64, whatever losses, those were post-election cases. Those were cases about Donald Trump and his allies trying to overturn the election. And he had an impossible hand that they played badly. There wasn't any amount of lawyering that was going to overcome the kind of deficits that he had in Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I mean, these were not particularly close. We did a good job of keeping the trains running on time in those cases and making sure that the briefs were being filed and the arguments were being made. But fundamentally, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won the election by 7 million votes and by a comfortable margin in the Electoral College. The litigation that we did pre-election over voting rules was successful. We won more than we lost. We won more than I thought we would. But we also lost a bunch of cases that were really painful. We brought a lot of litigation in Texas. We won a couple, but the courts in Texas are pretty conservative. The Fifth Circuit is very conservative. So we can't assume that the courts are going to solve every political problem. And so I fear you're going to see Republicans not just pass anti-voting laws, 
but some preposterously anti-voting laws, like off-the-charts anti-voting laws, because their politics will lead them to think that that's the way to go, and they'll figure, well, if the courts strike down 10% of it or 20% of it, that'll be okay. And that's not a way to run a democracy. No. So, Mark, listen, Trump could have had the law firm of Abraham Lincoln, Robert F. Kennedy, and Thurgood Marshall and not won a lot of these cases. But I'm just curious, when you looked at the set of clowns that he had around him, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you couldn't have created a bigger collection of losers and conspiracy theories. I'm just, and I know you felt like you had a good hand, but that only must have increased your confidence. There was this period pre- Giuliani, Powell, Ellis, where like, I'll give you an example. The one victory they had was to shorten the period to cure rejected mail ballots in Pennsylvania that were rejected due to lack of ID. So this was like a very tiny, tiny subset of ballots because only first time voters who had registered by mail and had voted by mail for the first time had to produce ID. The state had said that voters had nine days to cure after the election, and they brought a lawsuit to shorten it to six days. And they won. Now, at one level, it was kind of like, who cares? Didn't involve more than a couple of dozen votes statewide in the state they'd lost. But at least it reflected a reading of the law and all of that. And then all of a sudden, like the Kraken game. Like all of a sudden, all of a sudden I had to Google what Kraken was. And it was like a mythological octopus. And I'm like, what the hell does this have to do with post-election litigation? There were the misspellings, which everyone's focused on. There were the affidavits from people who were not who they said they were. There was all of that. But the one that I I don't know why this stuck with me is we had the data that was submitted in Michigan that was, in fact, from Minnesota. And that was obviously embarrassing on their part because <laughs> they had read the postal abbreviations wrong. There was the made-up county in Georgia that doesn't exist in Georgia. Okay. And that was problematic for them. But my favorite is in one of the lawsuits, they cited Edison County. And it turns out there is no Edison County anywhere in America. So it's not even like they made up a county in one state. They made up an entire county. I mean, I spent a day trying to find Edison County. There's an Edison Township yeah. in New Jersey, there but is. there is no Edison County in New Jersey. There's no Edison County anywhere. By the way, that's kind of an oversight. There should be an Edison County. It so. really, right? You figure there had to be somewhere. <laughs> Were you ever in court with Giuliani? I was in the Zoom court with Giuliani. Giuliani was only in court for one case, which was the Pennsylvania case. I was very careful throughout all of it to not disparage the lawyering on the other side, except Giuliani's performance in Pennsylvania, which was appallingly terrible. He did not understand what was happening. He was asked a question about what level of scrutiny applies. And normally, if you're challenging a law under the Constitution, you say it's strict scrutiny that applies, which means that the law has to meet a heightened standard because you don't want to disenfranchise voters unless there's a really compelling state interest. And his answer was the usual. <laughs> <laughs> like he did, he just said like, oh, no, you know, the, the usual scrutiny. This was not the best effort that they could have put forward, which made sense since all the lawyers in that case had resigned. Well, I mean, we criticized those law firms for choosing to participate in what was so obvious a great lie. And the Lincoln Project's point of view was that this whole system rests on faith and belief in its legitimacy. These big name law firms took a walk really quickly when we posed a question to their corporate representations. But I, will there be sanctions for these people? 
I'm not a lawyer, but I'm just like, if they don't meet like some threshold for being sanctioned, like, what do you got to do? I think there do have to be sanctions. Typically, sanctions are instilled over frivolous claims, claims that are advanced to harass or to otherwise delay a proceeding. So certainly there is a grounds for sanction under the traditional sanctioning standards. What I've said is that it ought to be, right now, lawyers have an obligation to the court. You have an obligation as an officer of the court to treat the court fairly and honestly, even when representing a client zealously. And that's the reason why you can be sanctioned for advancing bad faith arguments, because the idea is you're violating your obligation to the court. It strikes me that a lawyer should have an obligation to democracy. It's kind of weird that we have to even say this, but if you're a lawyer and you say there should be martial law, that should be a violation of the bar rules. <laughs> you know, like, like you should have to have a fundamental commitment to the democratic institutions and democratic values. And we saw a lot of lawyering on the other side that I think was inconsistent with that. I think advancing the argument that four states have their votes entirely thrown out is inconsistent with democratic values and with having a democracy. Had that happened, I think advancing on the floor of the Senate to throw out states on the grounds that Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz articulated, I think, is inconsistent with having an obligation to democratic institutions and free and fair elections. And so I think the bar, if it doesn't feel like it has that power, it needs to change its rules to explicitly have that authority. We're going to take a short break. More with Mark Elias when we come back. Welcome back. We now see all over the country Republican efforts to aggressively limit vote by mail, make it harder to register. CNN had a piece on this. Let's play that and have you react to it if we could. False fraud claims are now fueling GOP efforts to roll back, to restrict voter access. More than 100 bills that would restrict voting are moving through several state legislatures. This is a huge story. State legislatures in 28 states pursuing 106 bills that would restrict voting access. And I, and I found the comments of a Republican from Georgia kind of speaking with her outside voice here that gets at the motivation. She said they don't have to change all of them, the election laws, but they've got to change the major parts of them so that we at least have a shot at winning. So enraging, but predictable. That report mentioned 28 states, and you've done battle in all of them. So give us a sense of how grave a threat this is, or is most of this going to be a lot of fire that doesn't end up with real changes to our election laws? I am very worried about it, and I'm worried about it in a number of states. Georgia comes to mind, Texas, Arizona, to name three. But the way to think about voting and voting restrictions is you can restrict how people register. You can restrict how people vote and then you can restrict how their votes count. And a lot of the litigation from the last election cycle around vote by mail were in the how people vote and how people's votes count and also around voter registration. But what I really worry about is particularly where you are dealing with populations who are new voters or more infrequent voters, 
small changes to how you vote and making that harder, and in particular, how votes count or don't count, have really, really big consequences. Now, Mark, I want you to react to this, and then I want Steve's view on it. Obviously, we've got the COVID crisis. We've got an economy in tatters. We've got to repair our relationships. There's a lot to do in immigration climate. So the Biden administration's task is enormous from a priority standpoint. But it does seem that if this version of the Republican Party, the autocratic version, wins a presidential race, America's probably over. And if they win all three chambers, the stakes here are existential. To pass something like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would require getting rid of the filibuster, which I, like many people who've been in politics and government a long time, uh, it's a tough question, right? I've come to the view that we probably need to get rid of it, knowing, by the way, that the Republicans, when they're in power, will fully utilize that weapon, <laughs> unlike the Democrats. But for me, the most important reason is to pass voting rights. So I'd like you to react to that. But also, let's say in that idealized version of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passes, maybe with just 50 Democratic votes, maybe you get a couple of Republicans, I doubt it. How much of that protects the country from some of these more insidious efforts at the state level? So first of all, I agree with your premise, and it's what keeps me up at night, candidly, is that every day the news brings more and more evidence that if the current Republican Party were to gain power, it would be the end of democratic institutions. Donald Trump had no commitment to democratic institutions or norms. The Republican Party has shown itself in the post-election period to share that. The fact that it was one thing when the Texas attorney general sued four states to disenfranchise their entire, <laughs> disenfranchise every voter in the state, but then to watch 128 members of Congress sign on. And then most importantly, from my standpoint, to watch 18 other Republican attorney generals sign on. So this is the law enforcement officers in all of these other states putting their states on record as supporting that. So I agree with your premise. In terms of how big of a deal would it be if we passed the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, it would be enormously consequential because it would put into federal law for purposes of federal elections. And since almost everywhere state elections are on the same ballot as federal elections, it would guarantee minimum standards for how voting works, how registration works, how redistricting works, and provide new safeguards for minority voting rights in particular. From my standpoint, it is a vital piece of legislation to pass, though there are other things that I think we have learned since November that I think we should be looking at as well. For example, one of the things that we learned in November was that the pageantry of democracy, which is David, you and I have done this together over the years. You get the precinct results and then the precincts certify their results to the county and then the county certifies its results to the state and then the state sends its results in the case of presidential. It sends it to the electors and the archivists of the of the U.S. Then the electors meet and they certify it and then they send those certificates to Congress and then Congress opens those certificates. It's like a whole lot of calligraphy and ribbons. It's like, yay, this was the result. Next time, yay, same result. Yeah, right. It's every time there's like a new ribbon on a new piece of parchment with more calligraphy. That had a real benefit, which was it celebrated democracy. The repeated certification and recertification of the election showed people that there was real care and a celebration of the results 
from one state to the next. We saw that weaponized in a way that no one would have imagined possible. I mean, the Republicans tried to derail Michigan first by having the Republicans on the Detroit City Board of Elections refuse to certify the results of Detroit. Talk about it like an overtly racist (laughs) effort. Like literally, they only targeted Detroit. Yeah, their message basically being if Detroit hadn't voted, we would have won. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And then when that went up to Michigan, then they tried to say, let's block the certification of all of Michigan. And so I worry that it's not just the voting process that we have to worry about, although that's obviously a big part of it. It is actually the commitment to democracy and institutions and norms, which is broader than voting. One of the bills in Arizona that I worry about would give the legislature the ability to overturn the results of the election up until the swearing in just by a majority vote. They could just say, we don't like the outcome of the election, so we, the legislature, are going to decree a different result. Those are problems that go beyond voting. Well, once you lay the proposition out on the table as boldly as they have, you start going down a hill that ends with nobody getting to vote anymore. That's where it all ends up. And so by the time this is released, Microsoft is going to have announced that they're going to suspend donations forever to all of the members and all of the committees that sustain all of the members who voted to disenfranchise with a nullification vote millions and millions and millions of black voters from certified state elections in the vote on the floor of the House and on the Senate after the insurrection. And they're also going to announce that they're going to fund a major democracy initiative and call on other corporations to do that as well. And of course, that immediately puts corporate America into this fight about what's happening in the states. Now, Kevin McCarthy rose on the House floor as the leader and essentially declared that 140 members, at least, believed that they were the guardians of something and get to decide what votes count and whose votes count in certified state elections, forgetting for a moment that the states created the Congress and not the other way around. But when Kevin McCarthy did that, he created the new Jim Crow caucus, which is explicitly now saying the more black or brown people or minority voters that vote, we can't win. Though the evidence shows that, in fact, that this is not true politically, this is the ideology which subsumes the truth in an identitarian politics, which is around white in the end, because that's who stormed the Capitol. That's who is at the core of the mythology of the stolen election, which is vested in the idea of millions of these illegal black votes coming in. So as you look at these laws in the state, just as was the case around the gay marriage campaigns in Indiana, for example, the state was forced to roll that back because of the implications of not being able to host the NCAA tournament or professional sports leagues. So if you're in a state that has an NFL team, I wonder how those NFL players think about playing in a state that is trying to restrict the right of people who look like them, to vote. 
right? I think the important public companies and institutions in this country are drawn into this, that this fight will take place transparently. It has the same lack of moral ambiguity as did these fights in the 1960s. This is clear as day, racial discrimination, and this is going to be a defining fight over the course of 2021. We're having this fight. This is what the Trump catastrophe has wrought. I think you raise a number of really important points. One of them is that corporate America has a huge cudgel if it wanted to fix this problem. If corporate America wants to fix democracy reform and wants to take it on, there are a lot of tools that they have at their disposal. And before the election, I pointed out to anyone who would listen that when Sherrod Brown was the Secretary of State of Ohio, which was granted a while ago, he convinced McDonald's in parts of Ohio to put voter registration forms on the back of their menus so that people could literally flip over their placemat, they could fill out the form, and then they could drop it at McDonald's and it would get processed as a voter registration form. And there weren't corporations in America in 2020 who were willing to do that for fear of risk of appearing that they were putting their thumb on the scale one way or the other. I shouldn't say there weren't any companies, but the bulk of corporate America didn't want to engage in that. And there is both pressure that corporate America could bring to bear on state legislatures, as you point out, but there are other things corporate America could do in terms of facilitating voting. Look at what the NBA owners and the players did around using their arenas as polling locations. I mean, imagine if all of corporate America or big chunks of corporate America said, we're going to use our resources to register people to vote. We're going to use our resources to give people IDs in states that need ID. We'll take that on. You know, I point out that colleges and universities have done this at times where they will take on their students' needs to make sure that they have the needed paperwork and identification. They could host polling sites in many states. They could pay their employees to be poll workers. There are a number of things, in addition to pressure on the legislature, that some of the big corporate brands could do. The question, though, Steve, as you know, is that they generally don't want to get involved in this because they don't want to seem as they're on one side. There's a lot of groups we're talking to. We're going to have some great announcements in the weeks ahead, but I think a impenetrable wall will descend to hold the line against further incitements to insurrection that takes a lot of money out of the autocratic party that's fueled all of this. And a lot of good news coming in that direction, I think, a lot of success. I do think that, Steve, you're right. I think sadly, but I think necessarily, we need to have corporations play a safeguarding role here. The money is critical. So starve that and fight off the worst attempts like Marx talked about in Arizona, Georgia, and Texas. But then let's look at what we can do more positively to shore things up. I think that campaign can be successful because I think at the end of the day, employers are not going to have an option if their workforces are demanding this. But Mark, it concerns me because the things you listed that we have to do are hard. They're going to take a long term. They're not as sexy. And it seems to me like we're going to be under years, if not decades, long threat level in this country. Yeah. Battleground is going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Battleground. We're here with superstar lawyer Mark Elias. What does a failed coup attempt lead to? Almost always leads to another coup attempt. 
And the leaders of insurrections and the soldiers in insurrection learn from their failed coup. Right. Let's say 2024. Maybe it's Biden. Maybe it's Harris. Who knows? Maybe it's you, Mark. I don't know. Someone's the Democratic nominee for president. And it's closer. And it's one state. Let's say it's even 10,000 votes, which is not close. As you know, no recount's ever going to change that. Right. Do we think that if they retake the House and Senate, that the Democrat would win an election where there are 280 electoral votes up by 10,000 votes in Arizona? I don't think we can confidently say they would. Yeah. And this is where my thinking has changed. If you had asked me this question on November 2nd, I would have given you one answer. And today I would give you a different answer. I am definitely a street fighter when it comes to this. I think the Republicans would probably use worse words than that. But when I saw 128 members of the House and 18 attorneys general sign onto a legal brief to throw out the results in four states, I thought, okay, we are now in a wholly different place. We are like in a holy, holy, like- Absolutely. This is not, we are not in the like- No. Nope. It ain't Florida 2000, you know? This is, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Listen, in Florida in 2000, no matter how you view that, it was an election that was adjudicated around a couple of hundred votes mm -hmm. in a national election for the most powerful office on earth. But what these people have all done is beyond anything that's been done since we saw the beginning of the Civil War to the country. It is a declaration of repudiation against American ideas and ideals that's fundamental. We have a real-life authoritarian movement in this country that's not faithful to the precepts of the republic. We need to wake up to that. I agree with you. I spent my entire career trying to advance the interests of the Democratic Party. But I have to say, we would be in a hell of a lot better place if we had a functioning Republican Party it would be a better thing if Marjorie from Georgia- QAnon uh, Marjorie, yeah. Yeah, QAnon Marjorie was repudiated and treated in the way in which the Republican Party treated Todd Akin in Missouri years ago. Because ultimately, we can't have a system in which if one party doesn't win, our democracy goes away. And I feel like that's right now where we are. That's where we are. And I don't want to lose the headline. I mean, you and you may be the preeminent expert on this, do believe in a scenario in 2024 where the Democratic candidate wins the election, has enough electoral votes, but it's just by one state and the margin is, you know, even a few thousand, that that could be challenged. So that's scary. When we look at governor's races, House races, Senate races, do you think on balance, people who lose races will admit that they lost and concede defeat if they're a Republican? Or do you think there's going to be outsized pressure on them to say, I didn't lose, file lawsuits? Like, I think we're going to learn a lot from 22 about what the market will bear in 24. I'm just wondering if you're getting any sense of where that question could be headed. I don't know, but I think a lot depends on how Republicans view the success or failure of this time period. Politics, sometimes public opinion turns one way or the other and looks back on an event, even of relatively recent vintage, and kind of recasts it. So if this is viewed as having been a success and Hawley is raising a lot of money and is now a front runner for president and Cruz is a hero among Republicans, if Trump is in fact the most popular Republican person, then I think we're in for what you just described. If on the other hand, 
there is a resurgence and all of a sudden, you know, Adam Kinzinger is, is uh, you know, now, now the, uh, the face of the Republican Party, then, then no, I don't think it will. So I think it's going to depend a little bit on how Republicans view the success or failure of this moment. Mark, thanks for, uh, for being with us. Mark, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts for wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did some great research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Wassell is our executive producer.